KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The coronavirus pandemic brought new attention to the practice of virus hunting. This is research involving emerging viruses found in animals but have not infected humans. But the dangers involving the research of deadly pathogens have some concerned it could result in another pandemic, and many scientists are now arguing the risks outweigh the benefits. David Willman is an investigative reporter with The Washington Post. His latest reporting involves a year-long investigation into the risky world of virus hunting. And he's here to tell us more about what he found. David, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good to have you here. I'm going to tell you, your reporting, uh, it it made a lot of us a little uneasy. (laughs) It can be concerning. So first off, can you explain what virus hunting is and how this type of research came about? The genre of virus hunting that my colleague Joby Wark and I focused on was the pursuit of uh, viruses that are being transmitted only among animals. And that kind of uh, activity has been going on uh, with U.S. sponsorship for the last dozen years or so. And it it entails uh, what we focused on, sending uh, teams of researchers to remote locations, typically in Southeast Asia, other parts of Asia, parts of Africa. It's also intended for the areas in South America where these viruses indeed are circulating among the animals. That's distinct from pathogens that have spilled over and are causing human disease and suffering. What are possible benefits of researching these animal diseases before they are ever discovered in humans? Well, the intent of the programs has been to uh, have better situational awareness of what viruses might be out there. The fact being, however, that there are tens of thousands of such viruses, and the chances of any one of them spilling over into humans, uh, according to experts, is is minuscule. But uh, the intention was to learn more about what's out there, and ideally, to be able to predict uh, the next spillover and present uh, a future pandemic. Of course, the work, uh, regrettably, neither predicted nor prevented the ongoing SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Right. So you touched on it, but what are the risks involved here? Is it mainly the possibility of an infected animal biting a researcher? Well, there's really, um, one our work in the Washington Post is uh, shine a light on is that there's a chain of risk. And, you know, you're right, it starts at the point of where the researchers intersect the animals. Let's say in bat canes, uh, algae forests, under canopies of trees, where the bats roost. So 
if a researcher breathes in aerosolized uh, material from that guano, that could lead to an infection. There's also risk in handling the bats right there um, at the point of collection. You could get bitten, and in fact, uh, researchers are bitten. And if those bites uh, draw blood, then you know the risk is obviously greatly increased of an infection. So there's risk with the collection. There's risk with placing the genetic material that is that is extracted from the bats or the the guano that's sprayed up from the cave floors. That has to be put in sealed vials and then into sealed foam containers, kept at temperature control, and the the custody must be safeguarded. So that's the the transport and shipment component. And then there's risk back at the at the laboratory uh, with analysis of the genetic material. Now there are safeguards. You know you hope that the material is chemically inactivated before it is analyzed at the laboratory, but those procedures have to be fail safe. You know, are there examples of virus hunting where it's proved successful and helped save lives? The virus hunting activities, again, that was that, that we're, we've looked at, uh, these animal-to-animal transmitted viruses, has been ongoing for a dozen years or so. And so I guess on the positive side, you would say that more information has been gathered and scientists can continue to take further steps to research. Uh, regrettably, uh, the activities to date have not produced uh, a vaccine that would prevent certainly the pandemic that we've been going through or therapeutics that would stop it in its track. So that's juxtaposed with the risk of the virus hunting, which is certainly 24-7 and is, is constant. So it's a matter of weighing the potential benefits with what we know are the certain risks. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. That was Washington Post reporter Mark Willman talking about his reporting on virus hunting and the risks involved. Here to give us more insight on infectious disease research and pandemic preparedness is Dr. Christian Ramers, an infectious disease specialist with Family Health Center San Diego. Dr. Ramers, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me, Jay. And we've spoken to you numerous times over the course of the coronavirus pandemic. How prepared do you think we are for another potential pandemic today? Well, it's a good question, and I I certainly hope that we would take the lessons that we learned over the last three years and apply them to future pandemics and not just have collective amnesia about what we've all been through. You know, anybody in infectious diseases in the field knows that these threats are likely to keep on coming. On average, about every five to seven years, we have another emerging infectious disease, and each of them has a different degree of pandemic potential. We've had Zika virus and Ebola and West Nile virus and even bacteria like a community-acquired MRSA. So this is going to be a problem that keeps on coming. 
at us. And I think it's it would be wise to actually stop and think about where we are and think about preparedness going forward, uh, rather than just kind of get back to business as usual. I mean, how important is it for us to research emerging animal viruses before they spread to humans? Yeah, there's a couple of different approaches here. There's kind of a, a really more aggressive approach where you send scientists and biologists out in the field to take samples from animals, be they bats or, or livestock or other animals, and really kind of try to get ahead of the curve. That's a pretty risky thing to do because going out there and discovering these thousands and thousands of viruses that potentially could jump to humans, you know, you could actually have accidents and you could have people get sick from that very work. Another way to do it is just to be very um, active in your surveillance of what's happening in humans. Uh, and that is to say that creating sort of networks that report out on new illnesses um, that we can quickly jump on. And, and sort of it's a question of, of where we want to put our money, where we want to put our funding in those two different buckets. Mm. So then what risks do you see in researching these viruses? I mean, do the potential benefits outweigh the risks in your view? Well, as I mentioned, there's risks to the individual workers themselves. I mean, this is dangerous work when you're when you're collecting samples from bats and other animals that can that can bite you and, and the workers themselves certainly could get sick. But secondly, there's more of an existential threat from bad actors. You know, we maybe 10 years ago, it was discovered that there were still live smallpox um, virus samples in the NIH that were previously unaccounted for. And there's kind of a theoretical risk that a, a bad actor could get a hold of this and turn it into a bioterrorism weapon. And then the question becomes, should we be actively pursuing this because we're worried about other uh, you know, rogue international actors developing these type of bioterrorism weapons? Or should we just kind of shut it down and have very, very strict federal regulation? And you know, there's arguments on both sides. A lot of this came to the fore when the anthrax um, kind of terrorist attacks were happening. Um, and I think the government really responded with a lot of interest and funding into proactively dealing with bioterrorism and kind of getting getting ahead of the curve. Uh, I mean, the, the prospect of something turning into a, a bioterrorism weapon um, is certainly frightening. Do you think there's sufficient safety guidelines in place in this type of research? Probably not. And I think some some oversight and some regulation would be would be a good thing. Uh, you know, these are these are dangerous viruses and, and not only the just the viruses themselves and the risk to the workers, the lab workers that are dealing with them. But there needs to be oversight, I would say, similar to, you know, genetic research, where if we we're talking about cloning, there are really ethical concerns that that need to be talked about and thought about. And for example, you know, there are some researchers that may take a a regular old virus like influenza that we see every year and sort of work on a, what's called a gain of function mutation and maybe make it even worse or make it look in the lab that it's more transmissible, there absolutely needs to be oversight of that type of thing because it could be a very dangerous thing if it does get out of the lab into the general population. Hmm. Do you see a natural or synthetic virus more likely to be at the root of a potential future pandemic? Well, that's a very difficult question. And, and Jade, I think you might be alluding to sort of what happened with COVID. And there's definitely still debate about this. Look, as I mentioned, every five to seven years, we have what's called a spillover event where sort of a new virus jumps from a different species into humans. It's been happening throughout our entire evolution. And many of the common diseases that we see, such as tuberculosis or HIV or influenza, are viruses that originally, viruses or bacteria that originally were in animals. 
you know, tuberculosis came from cows when we domesticated cows and influenza probably came from birds and HIV probably came from monkeys. So it's not implausible that this just happens as a part of the natural world. But I think there's also this anxiety that um, if, if sped along by a rogue researcher or somebody that could actually create a sort of quote unquote Frankenstein virus, that might even be even more dangerous than what happens naturally. As an infectious disease specialist, what is your biggest concern when talking about the prospect of a future pandemic? My biggest concern is just not being prepared. You know, we've we've seen funding for public health just decline over the last 30 years or so. And um, unfortunately, we just don't have the systems in place that I think we should. And as we look forward towards the next pandemic, really being able to have the staff and the resources to respond to whatever's going to happen next is really critically important. And we really should take the lessons from this pandemic, where to be honest, I think we were caught a little bit flat footed in a lot of ways, not having diagnostic testing right away. Um, we just need to be sure that we're ready. And um, you know, don't get me wrong, we, we responded to COVID with incredible speed to developing vaccines within about 90 days and having therapeutics within a year and so on and so forth. Um, but let's take those lessons forward and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And that in mind, what would you change about pandemic preparedness? I mean, what more needs to be done? Yeah, I think the public health infrastructure, as I just mentioned, would be probably the number one thing is let's not forget about how important this is to all of us. Um, if we just kind of stick our heads in the sand and and uh, go back to business as usual without really thinking thoughtfully about what can happen in the future, uh, again, we could be caught flat footed. So just making sure that public health which is just an essential function of any society, gets the adequate funding that it needs. And with things like climate change and things like um, uh, more human settlements really imposing on animal habitats, I, I think this is just going to be more and more common. I've been speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers, Assistant Medical Director with Family Health Centers of San Diego and a member of San Diego County's Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group. Dr. Ramers, as always, Thank you for your insight and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.